Brickwork rising out from the pristine mountain. Kulaba, city which reaches from heaven to earth. Unug, whose fame like the rainbow reaches up to the sky, a multicolored sheen as the new moon standing in the heavens. Built in magnificence with all the great powers. Lustrous mount founded on a favorable day, like moonlight coming up over the land. Like bright sunlight radiating over the land. Cow coming forth in abundance. All this is Unug, the glory of which reaches the highland in its radiance. Genuine refined silver covers Arada like a garment. It's spread over it like linen. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and these are my guests. Hi, I am Jojo. I am a person. <laughs> that is true. My name is Kira. I've been here before. Happy to be here. Grateful to be alive. So we are currently listening to Enmerkar and Ensu Keshdana. So essentially, this is a contest between the two different kings of two different kingdoms. Our hero, the King Enmerkar of the city of Unuk, also known as Uruk, is the protagonist of a cycle of myths, of which this is one. And his opponent, Ensu Keshdana, the Lord of Arata, is the king in this kind of legendary mountain kingdom that he's trying to get resources and labor from. Basically, Enmerkar wants Ensu Keshdana to send him people and all of the minerals that are mined from the mountains and brought down to the lowlands, where Unug is. So the story begins with Arata on the offensive. Ensu Keshdana, the Lord of Arata, begins talking about Unug. Let him submit to me. Let him bear my yoke. If he submits to me, indeed submits to me, then as for him and me, he may dwell with Inanna within a walled enclosure, but I dwell with Inanna in the Izagin of Arata. He may lie with her on the splendid bed, but I lie in sweet slumber with her on the adorned bed. He may see dreams with Inanna at night, but I converse with Inanna awake. He may feed the geese with barley, but I will definitely not feed the geese with barley. I will gather the geese's eggs in a basket and cook their goslings. The small ones into my pot, the large ones into my kettle, and the rulers of the land who submitted will consume, together with me, what remains from the geese. So the text here is broken. It's unclear exactly what he planned to do with the geese's eggs and goslings. I assume they were being cooked because they were later being eaten. Anyway, Ensu Keshdana sends out a messenger to carry this threat to Enmerkar in the city of Unug. I didn't realize this was a threat. <laughs> I mean, well, kind I of mean it's kind of a boast. I will definitely not feed the geese with barley. I'm better than that. The messenger runs like a wild ram and flies like a falcon. He leaves in the morning and returns already at dusk, like small birds at dawn. Like small birds at midnight, he hides himself in the interior of the mountains. Like a solitary donkey of Shakan, he cuts through the mountains. He dashes like a large, powerful donkey. A slim donkey, eager to run, he rushes forth. A lion in the field at dawn, he lets out roars. Like a wolf which has seized a lamb, he runs quickly. Oh, someone's hot for this messenger. Oof. He has so many different animals. He's a donkey, and a lion, and a wolf. And small birds, also. And a wild ram. And a falcon. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of Sumerian animal metaphors. So the messenger reaches the court of Enmerkar in Unug, and he repeats Ensu Keshdana's demand to surrender to Arata. Enmerkar replies, He may dwell with Inanna in the Azagin of Arata, but I dwell with her as her earthly companion. He may lie with her in sweet slumber on the adorned bed, but I lie on Inanna's splendid bed, strewn with pure plants. Its back is an oog lion, its front is a peering lion. As the oog lion chases the peering lion, 
and the peering lion chases the oog lion. The day does not dawn, the night does not pass. Enlil has given me the true crown and scepter. Nanurta, the son of Enlil, held me on his lap as the frame holds the water skin. Aruru, the sister of Enlil, extended her right breast to me, extended her left breast to me. When I go up to the great shrine, the mistress screeches like an Anzu chick. And other times when I go there, even though she is not a duckling, she shrieks like one. <laughs> That's what she said jokes? Uh. No, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, I find the love goddess better jokes. <laughs> yeah. and this is the only myth where that, where that metaphor is like literal, literal, but it's, you know, it's fun. And the bit about the oog lion and the peering lion chasing each other and the back and front. Is, is is that, what is it, like the two-backed monster or something? Or like... Maybe. That would be fun. That'd be very funny. There's a phrase that talks about like bumping uglies that it's like two... Yeah, the beast with two backs. Y- yeah. Okay, thank you. That's what I'm, that's what I heard there. What I think was interesting was the bed strewn with pure plants. Mm-hmm. Does that mean like I sleep on like the good bed? Like it is made out of one material and therefore it is superior to whatever your adorned bed is with other materials on it or like what is he trying to say there as somebody who likes to sleep on foam True. <laughs> so like sumerian beds would have been like basically reed mats that you would pile like rushes on i don't know if they really mm-hmm. had textile like sheets because they would have been really really labor intensive it was not uncommon to sleep on a pile of rushes so you know you'd want them to be fresh and recently put there mm. and it may be that even when they're sleeping in you know fine linen royal beds or whatever they still have kind of like a ceremonial attachment to spreading rushes on a bed so there might be kind of like a ritual importance to it but i don't know about that that's very interesting i never would have thought of that very yeah. interesting yes back to enmerkar's monologue no city was made to be so well built as the city of unuk it is unuk where inanna dwells and as regards arata what does it have to do with this it is brick built kulaba where she lives and as regards the mount of the lustrous may what can it do about this for five or ten years she will definitely not go to arata he who has nothing shall not feed the geese with barley but i will feed the geese with barley i will gather the geese's eggs in a basket and cook their goslings the small ones into my pot the old ones into my kettle and the rulers of Sumer who submitted will consume together with me what remains from the geese. So this guy's saying like, my city is bigger than your mountain town. I mean, yep. Okay. But you know, it's real tasty. Hmm. Tell me about it's it. It's like geese and duck. Nice. Yes. So good. Fucking good. That's some fatty bird right there. Hell yeah. That's funny though. This is, this is great. And I love it. Right. This I, pissing I contest. Like, my dick's bigger than your dick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's very fun that just like the first like long literature, which is what this is, is so petty. If there's anything humans know very, very well, it's pettiness. That is We've very been true. petty since the beginning. Ooh. So the messenger goes back to Arata and relays Enmerkar's message, essentially that he will not submit to Ensu Keshtana, who is bowled over by Enmerkar's obvious superiority. <laughs> so Ensu Keshtana, the lord of Arata, panics and he consults all his priests and advisors and asks... What shall I say to the Lord Unug, the Lord of Kulaba? His bull stood up to fight my bull, and the bull of Unug has defeated it. His man has been struggling with my man, and the man of Unug has defeated him. Yeah, so this might be a reference to the champions from the other text about Enmerkar. The text here is damaged, and it's unclear exactly what's happening. But, anyway. The convened assembly answered him straightforwardly. It was you who first sent a boastful message to Unug for Enmerkar. You cannot hold back Enmerkar. You have to hold back yourself. 
yourself. Calm down. Your heart will prompt you to achieve nothing, as far as can be known. So Ensu Kashdana refuses. If my city becomes a ruined mound, then I will be a potsherd of it. But I will never submit to the Lord of Unug, the Lord of Kulaba. It's really like going down with the ship here, huh? Yeah, yep. I don't know what a potsherd is. It sounds like a shard, I imagine but... it's a shard of a pot. So now, the story introduces a new character. So a sorcerer, whose skill was that of a man of Hamazu, or Giri Nuna, who came over to Arata after Hamazu had been destroyed, practiced sorcery in the inner chamber at the edge of Par. So the sorcerer talks to Ensu Kashdana's minister. My lord, what is it that great fathers of the city do not give advice? <laughs> I will make Unug dig canals. I will make Unug submit to the shrine of Arata. <laughs> I will make the territories from below to above, from sea to the cedar mountain, from above to the mountain of the aromatic cedars, submit to my great army. Let Unug bring its own goods by boat. Let it tie up boats as a transport flotilla towards the Izagin of Arada. So the minister repeats this to Ensu Kashdana, who rewards the sorcerer with five minas of gold and five minas of silver. Hell yeah. Fine food and drink for the rest of his life, and a promise of much, much more after he comes back with men that he had captured from Unug. I would not mind fine food and drink for the rest of my life. That right. sounds really lovely. And like, if you think about it, that's kind of the main thing that a king can promise, like people who are loyal to him at this point, is just like, well, I have all of the best livestock and all of the best cooks. But does he have that, like, Kobe beef? Does he have that, like, Wagyu? It's a long ways from Japan. F so the sorcerer goes to Sumer. The sorcerer, farmer of the best seeds, directed his steps toward Eresh, the city of Nisaba, and reached the animal pen, the house where the cows live. The cow trembled with fear at him in the animal pen. He made the cow speak so that it conversed with him as if it were a human being. Cow, who will eat your butter? Who will drink your milk? My butter will be eaten by Nisaba. My milk will be drunk by Nisaba. My cheese, skillfully produced bright crown, was made fitting for the great dining hall. The dining hall of Moonisaba. Until Muai butter is delivered from the holy animal pen. Until Muai milk is delivered from the holy byre. The steadfast wild cow Nisaba, the firstborn of Enlil, will not impose any levy on the people. So Nisaba is the goddess of the city of Eresh. She's also the patron goddess of scribes and writing, as well as the harvest, because every goddess is also a agricultural goddess. And she is also the scribe for the gods. Wait, explain real quick for those of us who don't know. Why is it obvious that every goddess has to be an agriculture goddess as well? Well, it's, I mean, it's not it's just that every, you know, agriculture is the basis of the economy. So every god has a strong aspect of ensuring the fertility of the harvest. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can never get too far from things being about agriculture and Sumerian stuff. So the sorcerer goes to visit a goat, and the goat tells him the same thing. The state relies on tax, tribute, and corvée labor, and none of that can go forward until the cattle are milked, you know, and the various plant and animal products are gathered from the farms and taken to the city center. I'm a little curious. This brings up a question in my mind, anyway, mm -hmm. as to what is the relationship between goats and cows? Like, are they friends? They don't attack each other. I guess that's as much of friends as you can ask for in livestock. Ooh. I know that for, like, some animals, like alpacas, they're supposed to be, like 
herd animals like they like mm. being around other animals and if you can't afford to get like a second alpaca you should at least get like a goat for the alpaca to have a friend nice yeah so like i'm wondering like if there's like some kind of friendship like that where like they feel a kinship of herding animals with goats like who is this goat to speak for the cows that is a good question and i don't know how friendly they are with each other who's to say certainly not i so the sorcerer works his magic on that day the animal pen and the buyer were turned into a house of silence they were dealt a disaster there was no milk in the udder of the cow the day darkened for the calf its young calf was hungry and wept bitterly there was no milk in the udder of the goat the day darkened for the kid the buck goat lay starving the cow spoke bitterly to its calf the holy churn was empty the cowherd dropped his staff from his hand he was shocked the shepherd hung the crook at his side and wept bitterly the shepherd boy did not enter the byre and animal pen but took another way the milk carrier did not sing loudly but took another road at the great gate facing sunrise the place marveled at by the land both of them crouched in the debris and appealed to utu for help we'll see how utu helps but first we're going to look at a population explosion in both southern mesopotamia and southwestern iran as well as the first uruk outposts on major trade routes in the rest of mesopotamia probably constructed so that southern mesopotamia can control the flow of labor resources and populations so, this episode will cover the Middle Uruk expansion, in other words, the expansion of the material culture of the alluvium across much of the Near East between about 3800 and 3400 BCE. So we're going to start with a quick look at the alluvium in the south. So during the Ubaid period in southern Mesopotamia, settlements were small and spread out. Starting in the late 4000s BCE, or the end of the Ubaid period, these existing settlements got bigger and lots of new settlements were established. This was probably related to coastal marshes drying up, creating more arable land. Within the alluvium, people were moving from villages to big cities. At first, they were moving mostly to Unug, but later on, they will move to other mid-sized towns in the southern alluvium. We don't have much archaeological data from the early Uruk period in the alluvium, or the period between about 4200 and 3800 BCE. Most likely, these sediment layers were destroyed during later construction at large sites like Ur and Unug. They might have been destroyed by construction during the late 3000s, or the late Uruk period, famous for the invention of writing, among other things. So in the absence of data, presumably what we can say about the south during this time is that more population growth is leading to more complexity. Temples and or public institutions are growing larger and more powerful, with more wide-ranging economic and political authority. This gave the elites who ran those institutions more control over the flow of surplus goods and labor. And as the economy grew, it incorporated more villages in the highlands and hinterlands. So essentially, the next 10 or so episodes will be about the Uruk period. So previously, we looked at the Ubaid village of Unug, or Uruk. It's in the southwestern alluvium, a little bit upriver from Ur, and nothing that interesting was going on there at the time. But the next 10 episodes will be on the Uruk period, between about 3800 and 3100 BCE. As I said, this is when they invented writing, as we know it. This is also when we'll see the first widespread urban society. But the next three episodes in particular will be about the Uruk expansion. So starting in the early 3000s BCE, we see a new characteristic type of material culture. As during the Ubaid, it includes tripartite buildings, clay sickles, clay wall cones, and clay bent nails for grinding grain. We'll also see cylinder seals, which were invented at Tel Brak, but they'll spread as part of the Uruk culture. And we'll also see certain types of pottery spread across the Near East. Most relevantly, mass-produced beveled rim bowls, which we'll talk about. So not long after this Uruk culture started to appear in southwestern Iran and northern Mesopotamia, outposts with this southern Uruk culture began to appear in pre-existing towns, most of which were along trade routes in upper Mesopotamia and Iran. And this is evidence of more intensive trade with the alluvium. This episode is about the middle Uruk period, from 3800 to 3400 BCE. We're going to start with Susiana in southwestern Iraq. We're also going to look at Telbrak, Hajanebi, Tepegara, and Nineveh. At Telbrak, the beginning of Mesopotamian influence coincides with a destruction layer. They may or may not be related. But either way, after that destruction, the material culture of Telbrak begins more and more to resemble that of the southern Uruk culture. But we're going to start with Susiana. 
where we see major population growth combined with Uruk cultural influence. Likely, what's happening are migrations from the alluvium into Susiana. Over time, the material culture in Susiana will resemble that of the Uruk culture more and more. And the Uruk period in Susa is called the Susa II period, coming between the Susa I period, which we covered back in episode 16, and the Susa III period, or the Proto-Elamite period, which we'll cover eventually. So to start with Susiana, the geography of Iran has a couple of areas amenable to agriculture, like Susiana and some river valleys. But these tend to be separated from each other by rocky highland, and these mountainous areas are generally inhabited by lots of semi-nomadic herders instead of farmers. Some of the wild animals that live in this region include mountain goats, red deer, bear, and leopard, as well as wild gazelles, sheep, boars, and onagers, all of which were common enough to be hunted during the Uruk period. So, as you may recall, Susiana is a region in southwestern Iran, specifically a rich alluvial plain watered by the Karun, Karkay, and Dez rivers. Compared to southern Mesopotamia, Susiana has a slightly higher elevation and is slightly inland. It's named after the city of Susa, or modern Shush, in the west. On its eastern half, Chogamish is another major center, which we talked about back in episode 8. So Susiana is separated from the Mesopotamian alluvium by an overland route, with low dry hills and no fresh water. It's a little bit over a week's journey away. Trade between Iran and Mesopotamia dates far back before the Uruk period. During the Ubayid period, they had an overland trade network, trading some copper as well as stone for stamp seals, and probably some organic materials like timber. Most recently, we saw the massive temple platform at Susa, which was the world's biggest structure in the late 4000s BCE, get burned down twice. After the second time, Susa shrank drastically. The massive stepped temple platform was abandoned. Some people kept living in the upper town or Acropolis, but not all of it. Parts of the Acropolis and most of the lower town were left empty. By about 3800 BCE, Susa was only five hectares, about a mid-sized town for the time, and many people had moved out of the city to nearby villages. But from about 3800 BC onwards, Susiana experienced huge population growth. There were many more towns, the total occupied area in Susiana tripled, and Susa and Chogamish became major centers again. During the Middle Uruk, or about 3800 to 3400 BCE, about 25,000 people lived in 60 communities across the Susiana Plain, covering 1,400 square kilometers of productive agricultural land. This was the most prosperous time in Susiana during the 3000s BCE. Also during this time, the material culture in Susiana gradually became more and more similar to that of the Mesopotamian alluvium. This started off as intensive trade, but over time, Mesopotamian styles came to replace local styles in Susiana. This combined with the population growth may indicate a huge Mesopotamian migration into Susiana, during which the native population would have been assimilated. If so, this would be the only instance of an entire region settled en masse during the Uruk phenomena, or Uruk expansion. Everywhere else, we only see specific settlements or outposts within existing settlements. The most simplistic explanation is that southern Mesopotamian people migrated into Susiana, possibly creating a majority, quote-unquote, Uruk population in Susiana. There is some debate over whether Susa was ruled by a local or a Mesopotamian elite. We'll talk about that more in a bit. It's also possible that increased trade between Iranians and Mesopotamians led to local Iranians making Mesopotamian-looking goods. There was almost certainly some amount of intermarriage and intermigration, but there's no evidence that this population growth can be explained exclusively by Mesopotamian migration. Either way, over time, more and more people in Susiana were using Uruk-style goods. During the 2000s BCE and onwards, the patron god of Susa is named Inshushanak. This is clearly a Sumerian phrase meaning Lord of Susa, or Shush, In meaning En or Lord, Shush meaning Susa, and Ak is a Sumerian genitive suffix. In a god list at Abu Salabik in Sumer, around 2500 BCE, we see a god named Nin Shushanak. Nin means lord here, as in Ninurta and Ningirsu, not lady or sister, as it means in other contexts. This is clearly evidence of major Sumerian influence on Susa at some point before the 2000s. Again, the simplest explanation here is that the Uruk expansion was an expansion of Sumerian-speaking people, lots of whom migrated into Susiana and possibly controlled the government of Susa. 
So the Uruk expansion was primarily a way for southern Mesopotamian cities to procure foreign goods and secure their transport from where they originated in the wild to these Mesopotamian cities. So the Anarak mines in central Iran were a major source of copper. So if Susiana was being controlled by quote-unquote Uruk people, it would be primarily to control the trade routes going in and out of the mountains. Other materials imported from the mountains into Susiana include bitumen, which is like tar, alabaster for fine stoneware and sculptures, and chert for basic stone tools. From farther away in Susiana, we find seashells from the Gulf, copper and carnelian from the Iranian Plateau, and obsidian from the Anatolian Plateau. In Abu Salabik, during the Middle Uruk period, again about 3800 to 3400 BCE, half of all their chert for stone tools is procured from southwestern Iran, and the other half is from Syria. Their bitumen is from either southwestern Iran or the Middle Euphrates. Before this period, pottery in Susiana was fine and handmade, produced on a small scale. But after 3800, we see more use of the pottery wheel, which means potters can make fine wares more quickly, leading to more mass-produced plates, bowls, and jars. But we still see more handmade wares here than we do in the alluvium. This is also when we see the first mass-produced pottery in Susiana. So when you're using pottery molds, you don't need years of pottery experience to make many pots. A couple of manual laborers can produce many pots using these molds. Beveled rim bowls, the characteristic mass-produced bowl of the Uruk economy, are cheap and disposable, and they become increasingly common during this period. Both the pottery wheel and mass-produced bowls speak to centralized production of pottery. In other words, mass-producing pottery for purely utilitarian use. The pottery wheel also allows full-time potteries to make more high-status, high-value pottery, the pre-monetary version of expensive pottery. In both cases, pottery production is taking steps towards commoditization, which we'll talk about more soon. So let's look at the small village of Tepe Shafarabad, near the northern edge of the Susiana Plain. This village was about one half hectare, home to about 100 people, and it was on a traditional east-west trade route. Their architecture was mostly small, unplanned mud brick buildings, but we do have evidence of wall cones, which were presumably from a larger public building, being one of those characteristic Uruk design features. In terms of goods, we don't have any stone vessels, which are more labor-intensive than pottery. We do have some beads and amulets made of limestone, ceramic, and carnelian. So, in other words, we don't have that much fancy stuff from this village. So if there were any elites living here, they didn't live that different of a lifestyle from everyone else in the village. So most of our evidence from Shafarabad comes from a garbage pit, which is seasonally stratified. So in other words, we have their garbage that they were throwing away from at least two years of agricultural life. You know, and because newer layers were piled on top of older layers, we can go through them and see what they were doing at particular parts of the year. Here we have evidence of barley, wheat, lentils, and irrigated flax, and no evidence of orchard crops or wild foods. For the first year we have good records from, they appear to have had a huge agricultural surplus, and their culling practices seem to have valued long-term survival. But the second year appears to have brought an agricultural crisis, leading them to kill much more of their animals, sacrificing their herd's long-term viability in exchange for short-term food to eat. This crisis might be why there's not a third year represented in this record. So Shafarabad didn't have its own independent economy. Lots of its stuff was imported from elsewhere, and some of their productive activities seem to have been coordinated by outside authorities. So most of their durable goods were made elsewhere, like pots, grinding stones, and stone for tools. Most of their jars and bowls were made in a larger town, and other goods may have been made by locals or other specialists. We have crude beveled rim bowls that were recycled in domestic tasks. These were discarded at least twice as often during the first year as during the second. So this may indicate that more outsiders came for manual labor when the harvest is good. It might also mean that during the second year, which was a year of agricultural crisis, they could not afford to throw as much stuff away in general. We have one cylinder ceiling made in non-local clay on a jar which is evidence that some goods were imported in pottery. In other words, the clay was put on a jar somewhere else, and somewhere else someone sealed it with their cylinder seal and then sent it to Shafarabad. We have more seals on bales and baskets. Some of these have a seal impression of a beer drinking or symposium scene, which will have later parallels in Sumerian cylinder seal iconography. 
Again, this may have been sealed by an official for transport to Shafarabad. In another group of seals, we see similar images of a person and a dog stamped on both bale seals and storage room door seals. So these were probably stamped by officials who either lived in the village or came there to inspect their storage. We see the same number of deliveries to the village regardless of how the harvest went. So there may have just been a standard annual shipment from a larger town or admin center to this particular village, regardless of what was going on in the village. From these ceilings, we know that storehouse doors were opened at the site, mostly in winter or early summer. We don't have many discarded door ceilings in the first year when the crops were good, but we have many more in debris from the second year when the crops were bad. So this makes sense. In a year when you have plenty of food to eat, you don't need to open up institutional storehouses, but when the crops fail, you do. And that's why so many more of these storehouses were opened up in the second year. So let's move to Susa during the Middle Uruk period. Again, 3800 to 3400 BCE. During this period, Susa's population exploded so that it covered five times as much area. Now the upper town was nine hectares. It was built on the remains of the old temple platform, which now, because of erosion, was now more of a big hill. This upper town was more visible from farther away and easier to fortify because of the height. All big towns in Susiana had a physically elevated and fortified upper town. Usually, they would put their monumental and administrative buildings there. The word Acropolis is literally Greek for upper city, and the Athenian Acropolis famously is built on a kind of bluff overlooking the rest of Athens. Including the lower town, Susa covered at least 25 hectares, you know, 50 American football fields. In the lower town, we see larger buildings and administrative activity, which is usually concentrated in the upper city, as well as at least one pottery workshop. So the lower town in Susa is intimately involved, not only in economic production, but also in administrative activity. During the 3000s, Susa was the biggest city in Uruk Susiana. It controlled trade routes in and out of the mountains. It coordinated the economy of smaller villages like Shafarabad. This made the upper town of Susa the de facto administrative center of the entire region. So in a 1998 article by Henry Wright, starting during the Middle Uruk, quote, summary documents reached Susa, were assessed by a higher authority, and then were stored or discarded there, end quote. So in one room from the Middle Uruk, we have bale and basket ceilings impressed by eight different seals, usually two seals in parallel, one with a spider and one with rows of small figures. This clay ceiling was presumably removed from incoming packages. The clay itself would be discarded because the seal had served its purpose and the package would be used. In Iran, we see more stamp seals than we do in the alluvium. North Mesopotamia has more stamp seals than both, but these seals depict a new naturalistic style, giving the appearance of motion. Some seals with human bodies and animal heads are similar to those from sites like Gaura in northern Mesopotamia. In pre-Uruk art from Susiana, goats and sheep are most important. Less common are gazelle, deer, onager, and pig, and then sometimes cormorants and waterfowl. But all of these appear alone, whereas seals from the middle and late Uruk show changes in emphasis and structure. So now the most common animals depicted are domestic sheep and cow, wild lion, pig, deer, and fish. They often appear in banks and rows, which may indicate an ideology more committed to depicting nature as domesticated and ordered. Also, for the first time, we see social scenes involving humans, as opposed to one human and several animals. For example, we have scenes of several humans weaving. We also have cylinder seals, which first appear at Tel Brak, but were popularized by southern Mesopotamia. These show a mix of alluvial and Iranian designs. And at Susa, we have fewer seal impressions per document than we see at Unug, which probably speaks to a less complex recording system, that is, a less complex bureaucracy. But we see the same types of monumental architecture in both Susa and Unug, which may indicate that they have similar types of institutions ruling there. We'll talk more about that later. So here's what we know about Susiana. The population exploded in the middle Uruk, and around the same time, Uruk material culture started to appear, like architecture, pottery, art, etc. According to Guillermo Algaze, this is evidence that Susa was settler colonized by the alluvium. Essentially, Uruk people moved in, 
took over land and installed quote-unquote Uruk people in charge of an Uruk political system. But even if we could prove that all the immigrants were from the alluvium, that is, moving into these well-watered and sparsely populated plains in the early 3000s, there's no evidence that they took over the political leadership of the city of Susa itself. As we'll see next episode, lots of aspects of Uruk culture were originally from the Susa 1 period. These include artistic motifs, especially those relating to leadership. It's worth remembering that around 4000 BCE, Susa was home to the biggest monument in the world, so it likely had some cultural cachet that Unug did not have at the time. So as we've covered, Southern Mesopotamia is a wide, flat alluvial plain. It has lots of dirt, rivers, and marshes, and plenty of animals, all of which is great for agriculture and livestock, but it has no other resources. Far to the north, we see highland river valleys, which receive enough rain for dry farming. These are continually occupied before and after the Uruk period. We can think of Telbrak and Tepegawra and some of these other sites that are far to the north and where it rains enough. But between the northern dry farming region and the southern irrigation region, is a region which, in 2015, Joanne Clark and colleagues called the Zone of Uncertainty, which receives less than 300 millimeters of rain per year, but where the land is not flat enough for irrigation to become possible on a large scale. Here, agriculture is not sustainable in the long term, and this region was mostly occupied by pastoralists. In other words, herders grazing their sheep on the grass and then occasionally bringing them to the river to drink. So to look at the Middle Uruk expansion outside Susiana, so within certain pre-existing towns in the north and the east of Mesopotamia, we see the establishment of separate communities using mostly Uruk material culture, which are often located in or nearby existing settlements of locals using their own local culture. So the Uruk culture is expanding into some of the same areas as the previous Ubayid expansion, so western Iran, northern Mesopotamia, and eastern Anatolia, including some of the exact same sites, for example, Tepe Gaura. It's often suggested that this was to control the flow of natural resources, like copper, bitumen, timber, and lapis lazuli. It's worth noting that most of these sites were either near deposits of natural resources or involved in processing them before the Uruk people showed up. It's an extremely long trip from the alluvium to most of these sites. When you're traveling overland, your maximum speed is the speed of walking. We don't have horses yet, and if you're traveling with donkeys, your best bet is to put all your stuff on the donkey and then walk with the donkey. So because of this, the round trip to Syria and back would be about six months. A trip to the far edge of the Persian Gulf would take about two or three months, and it would be a comparable distance traveling to highland Iran and back, which would make a direct political relationship with the alluvium impossible, just because so much can change in the several months that you're traveling. So essentially, what we see are semi-autonomous trading outposts or enclaves. These appear to be southern Mesopotamian settlements, in or near these existing northern towns. They may have been populated by migrants from southern Mesopotamia in order to secure control over valuable goods at their source, or at least at the nearest convenient site to control that trade route. And during the middle Uruk, the most common type of Uruk enclave we see is a small neighborhood in an existing town, which we'll see at Godentepe and Hajanebi. So in terms of trade, the south can export crops like barley, wheat, and dates, livestock and animal products from sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs, like dairy, leather, and meat, and from sheep, of course, they can export wool, thread, and textiles, which have become much more important in later historical periods, as well as dried and salted fish. All of these result from a combination of labor, land, and water, because, of course, there are no other resources in the alluvium. Because of this, they have to import certain products from the highlands, including timber, like pine and cedar, metal, like copper, tin, silver, and gold, stone, like limestone, lapis lazuli, and diorite, and probably labor, in other words, prisoners of war or slaves acquired from elsewhere who were brought to southern Mesopotamia. Basically, the alluvium needs access to the mountain ecosystem, like the geological formations to create metal and certain types of stone, so they can find these in the east, in the Zagros Mountains of Iran, or to the north, in the Taurus Mountains of Anatolia. And soon we will see Uruk outposts built in both regions. And I will be using language from Guillermo Agaze, who borrowed some of his analysis from Emmanuel Wallerstein. This is the world systems theory. So essentially this is a mode of analysis that focuses on unequal relationships of exchange, centered on a particular society. That society at the center is called the core, and that core has unique authority over the economic production of the entire world system. 
So essentially, the core procures raw goods and labor on its own terms from other cultures and societies. These other societies are considered to be on the quote-unquote periphery. So some people in the periphery are made more powerful by trade. But in general, this unequal trade strengthens the core and weakens the periphery. So Wallerstein's theory was originally developed to explain European colonization. So the simplest explanation for how the core establishes and maintains its power is generally lots of violence. But there are also subtler methods of maintaining this unequal exchange. Most obviously, Mesopotamia has the largest settlements and the most continuous farmland. So again, lots of people put to work on lots of land, can create lots of food, which could feed much more people and so on. Of course, in the 19th century, we saw factories inside the core to process raw goods received from the periphery. The Uruk equivalent of that would be temple estates with lots of farmers, laborers, weavers, and so on working for them. They would import raw goods and use the labor they controlled to work these raw goods into high-value manufactured products. In a pre-monetary economy, it's not as simple as buy cheap, underpay your employees, and sell expensive. But temple grain fields are an economy of scale. And because they could produce more food, these temples could undertake labor projects that small peripheral towns wouldn't be able to. This is a positive feedback loop. More labor under the authorities of major centers creates a larger and more reliable flow of goods. You know, you can think of trading grain for minerals from the mountains. Because they're importing so many raw materials, the industries in big cities grow, creating more economic power for these elite institutions and the elite who run them. To the extent that they are exporting grain, the populations in their hinterlands will grow, which again will create more labor under the authority of these major centers and so on. So let's continue by looking at the Middle Uruk expansion in northern Mesopotamia. So let's go back to Tel Brak. So we're in the Habo River system in northeastern Syria. This river flows south into the Euphrates. In episode 17, we talked about the fact that in the early 3000s BCE, Tel Brak was the biggest city in the world and the first true city-state with what may have been the first proto-writing. So around 3600 BCE, Telbrock was destroyed by fire. This is probably an act of warfare, possibly relatedly. Around the same time, we see another mass grave in a 2011 article by Augusta McMahon and colleagues. On the east side of the city, this grave contains, quote, simultaneous and careless burial of at least 35 individual bodies, end quote. Around the same time, we see Uruk pottery start to show up. At first, it appears mixed in with local styles, but by the end of the 3000s, buildings and pottery in Telbrock will all be of Uruk design. It's not clear whether this was a quote-unquote Uruk invasion, that is a violent conquest by people from the southern alluvium. Obviously, correlation doesn't prove causation, so we can't prove that this mass grave and this destruction layer is necessarily caused by the people that are bringing these new types of pottery. But this is also the period of time when Unug surpasses Tel Brak in size and cultural influence. So Tel Brak's material culture will become more similar to Unug than to its former self. So during this period, the city was smaller than it had been, about 45 hectares. That is roughly the same size as it had been during the late Calcolithic II period, around 4000 BCE. The population was probably much lower than it had been during its peak. This is also when climate trends start to reverse. So we see less rain, the soil gets saltier, lakes get drier, and drought-resistant pistachio and juniper become more common in forests. Around the same time, economic production ramps up. We see copper pickaxes being cast at Brock. Textile production moves from households to workshops. We also see beveled rim bowls, like at Susiana, which are evidence of Uruk economic organization. One house appears to have been an obsidian workshop. Here we see obsidian blades stuck into a lump of clay while it was still wet. In 2005, Joan Oates called this, quote, an extraordinary clay blade holder, end quote. We also see a pipe drain made of baked clay. This is part of the standard Uruk urban design. We have similar plumbing at Chogamish. And Telrock was finally mostly abandoned when the Uruk colonial network collapsed. It's unclear what the last straw was. People appear to have left all their stuff there, and we have no evidence of destruction. People will, of course, return to Brock at some point in the future, as we'll see during the Kingdom of Nagar during the 2000s BCE. So around 3400 BCE, people in Tel Brak built the final version of the Eye Temple. This was the fifth similar structure built on the same spot. So here we see hundreds of eye idols mixed in with bricks and mortar. 
which is evidence for religious continuity. In other words, people following a similar religion as they had in the early 3000 BCE. This temple was raised on a platform like we've seen across the alluvium and in Iran. And at 25 by 30 meters, it was one of the largest buildings in Tel Brak. It had a tripartite design with a buttressed facade or essentially an Uruk design. It had a central shrine room with a central altar and its central altar had a facade decorated with gold foil and colored marble. It also had storage and service chambers to the west. This building was made of basalt and limestone boulders and sun-dried bricks. So it was clearly a large monumental building made of materials that would have been very labor-intensive to procure. So the Eye Temple had a multicolor facade with bands of gold and blue and white limestone. The front of its podium was fastened to a wooden backing by gold-headed nails with silver stems. Its podium was made of miniature prismatic Riemkin bricks, or the standard brick of Uruk society. Its walls were whitewashed and paneled with copper, and they bore an eye design, which is more evidence of religious continuity. But we also see Uruk designs at the Eye Temple. For example, the outer face of the north wall was decorated with a colored clay cone mosaic. The inner wall had rosettes of white marble, black shale, and red limestone. The main chamber was 18 by 6 meters, exactly three times as wide as it was long, meaning that it had the same proportions as temples at Eshnuna and Tel Ukair, also part of the Uruk world. So like I said, we see no spectacular destruction at the end of the Uruk period. It was occupied continuously, at least until about 3000 BCE. So as far as we can tell, everyone kept getting along. The population of Brock was mostly quote-unquote northern the whole time. Like at Ubaid Gawra, they adopted southern aspects of public identity, but they still worshipped at the same eye temple, which is evidence of cultural continuity both before and after Uruk quote-unquote colonization. So let's move a little bit east in the Khabur River system. Hamukar is a large town of around 13 hectares. It's 80 kilometers east of Telbrock, and it's situated along east-west trade routes, connecting the upper Habur to the upper Tigris. During the post-Ubaid period, Tel Hamukar was part of the same material culture as Tel Brak. We see multi-room mud brick buildings and infant jar burials. And notably, we see a destruction layer around the same time as the destruction layer at Tel Brak. We see extensive destruction, like burnt buildings, deep ash, and fallen walls, as well as clay slingshots. These slingshots are made from local clay, which indicates they were made on site and not brought with the attackers, which attests to some amount of preparation near the site that the attackers would have been attacking. And some of these slingshots were deformed from impact. So essentially, if you can think of a ball that is not quite hardened yet, and then you launch it against a wall, it is going to be flattened on one side, which can give us some clues about how they were used. So after this destruction layer, we see the beginning of an Uruk occupation, similar to what we saw at Tel Brak. Here, the local architecture is replaced with monumental Uruk architecture. So just like Chogamish, after it was destroyed, it was rebuilt as a kind of model planned Uruk city. So of course, we've been to Tepe Gawra before. This is in northern Iraq. We are 20 kilometers northeast of Nineveh along a major trade route. As usual, this is a small town, about two hectares, but we see more spatial and social differentiation than we would expect for a settlement that small. We have large tripartite buildings, which attest to more labor mobilization than we would expect from a small town like this, and lots of clay ceilings act as receipts of commodities from the surrounding area. And just as we see more labor expended at Gara than we would expect, we also see more exotic resources in tombs at Gara than we would expect for a settlement this small. So maybe what's happening here is that we have excavated the upper city, but not the lower city. So we might only be looking at the Acropolis of Gara and not the entire settlement. Or Gara might be a small center servicing semi-nomadic groups nearby. So just because we haven't found settled people living nearby doesn't mean that there weren't a larger group of people that were part of this community served by this Gara administrative center. They were just probably wandering around elsewhere. Either way, it would have been an important link in the trade between the highlands and the lowlands, being on the border between the Zagros Mountains and the plains. To quote Germa Algaze in 2005, some minerals found at Gara include, quote, turquoise, jadeite, hematite, lapis, carnelian, diorite, marble, alabaster, gypsum, serpentine, steatite, quartz, seashells, ivory, obsidian, copper, silver, and gold, end quote. So Gara 8 is the main Uruk level here. It was occupied after the first Uruk people showed up. 
We see that leaders were clearly mobilizing labor for something. In the side room of what is called the West Temple, we see lots of grain and stacks of wide flower pots, those being a northern style of mass-produced bowl. Whatever administrative organization they have seems to be routed through the central warehouse now, and we have evidence of production for export. They seem to have imported blocks of obsidian and then exported finished blades, so they were working on obsidian on site. So in this level, every transaction involving the warehouse seems to have an impression from the exact same seal, depicting a bull, a dog, and a snake. But now, the clay for these seals is coming from elsewhere. So for the first time since the late 4000s, Yara is receiving goods from elsewhere. And we know this because, you know, these containers were sealed elsewhere using clay from elsewhere. And then they arrived in Gara, and then the seal, having served its purpose, was removed and discarded. In interior culture, we see close connections to the rest of the highlands. For example, in seals, we see arrangements of horned animals, which are similar to those from contemporary sites in the Zagros and in Anatolia. We also see northern influence on their pottery and their rectangular mud brick tombs. But, as I mentioned, we also see less complicated administrative practices. So it's rare for one document to have more than one seal impression, unlike what we're seeing at Unug, so there probably aren't multiple layers of a bureaucracy here. We see obsidian vessels here that are the same type as those found at the White Temple at Unug in the Kulaba complex from around 3000 BCE. So those may have been imported from the north via Gara. We also see a redistribution of rations, but in much smaller quantities than those at southern sites. So again, we're looking at either a smaller bureaucratic state or less labor available overall, or more reliance on local ways of organizing labor projects that don't rely on this kind of Uruk-style administrative center. So moving to Nineveh, it's in northern Iraq. So Nineveh is most famous as the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was the biggest city in the ancient Near East around 700 BCE at 700 hectares. It was mentioned in the Book of Jonah as the city where Jonah is sent to preach and it's located at a major Tigris crossing. So it seems to have first been established as an Uruk outpost. Five to six meters of Uruk deposits attest to an extremely long-lived relationship with southern Mesopotamia, possibly stretching back before the outpost was built. During this time, the site would have been around 40 hectares, so not much smaller than Telbrock during the same period. We see characteristically Uruk materials in terms of pottery and cylinder seals and administrative practices. We see beveled rim bowls found inside a massive storehouse, that storehouse being over 300 square meters. We also see other beveled rim bowls spread out across the city. So although the big vaulted storehouse at Nineveh is built in a northern architectural style, we see a bunch of Uruk stuff near the Ishtar Temple. We see a sealed clay ball in a pit of beveled rim bowls, depicting a lion attacking a pair of bowls. In another seal, we see a stag and an ibex pursued by two dogs, with a hunter at either side of a pair of lions with crossed necks, all of which are very common in Uruk seal art. So let's look at Hajanebi. This is a three-hectare town in southeastern Anatolia, in the Piedmont of the Taurus Mountains. It sits on low bluffs overlooking the east bank of the upper Euphrates, so Hajanebi is positioned at a historic crossroads, not only across the Euphrates on an east-to-west route, but also overland on a north-to-south route, and notably it's on trade routes connecting the lowlands to copper deposits in the mountains. We have some evidence that people visited the site during the early Neolithic. We see pre-pottery Neolithic B stone tools, and some sherds of Ubaid pottery, but no evidence of a big village yet. It was first occupied for any period of time between about 3900 to 3700 BCE. This is phase A and phase B1. During this period, it was only about 1.3 hectares, so really a small village. So their crops were dominated by barley, which made up 80% of all cereals. Einkorn and emmer made up about 8% each. They also grew lentils and grass peas, as well as grapes and figs. We also see remains of almonds and pistachios. So the animal bones found at the site from this period are about one-third sheep, 10% goats, and pigs and cattle are a little over one-fourth each. So the fact that pigs and cattle make up a little bit over half of the total amount of animal bones found during this period shows that they had a more diversified herding economy than we'll see later on when the economy revolves more around sheep. So in this early period, we see a massive stone foundation for a wall. It's 1.5 meters wide and 1.2 meters tall, made of unworked limestone blocks. 
The top of it is flat, so it was probably originally built as the foundation for a mud brick wall, which would have sat on top. We also see a new large public building on the south side of town. So at some point during this period, the area around the biggest building was reorganized. The walls were now 3.3 meters tall and 1.7 meters thick. This building was oriented on a northwest-southeast direction, similar to Ubaid buildings and graves, the corners pointed towards cardinal directions. One of these walls has niches, which may indicate that this is a public building, based on parallels to Ubaid public buildings. On the floor of this building, we found a chlorite pendant and a chlorite bowl elsewhere at the site. The nearest sources of chlorite are 300 kilometers to the east. We also found copper and cowrie shells, the latter of which come from the Mediterranean Sea, 170 kilometers to the west. All of this is evidence of long-distance trade before Uruk contact. So Hadjanebi was part of the North Mesopotamian cultural region. We see similar pottery, stamp seals, and eye idols to other parts of northern Mesopotamia as well as chaff-tempered hammerhead bowls, which were a local style of pottery. Their stamp seals are generally simple carvings on limestone or baked clay, mostly found in domestic contexts. So here they're probably used for the earlier use of just a regular person marking their identity on a particular object, and not yet intensive administrative control over the flow of goods. But in a 2001 article, Gilstein wrote that they found, quote, One example of a rectangular seal carved from red siltstone, bearing an elaborate design, depicting deer, vultures, and a mace-carrying anthropomorphic figure, possibly a god or a demon, end quote. This seal was found in a niche and plastered building, so it might speak to some kind of social hierarchy in what may have been a public building. So in the west end of the site, we see four stone storerooms that are seven meters long. Stamp seals here attest to administrative activity. We also have evidence of metallurgical production, which is notable because it's not anywhere near metal deposits. To quote the same article from Gilstein again, we see items made for metallurgical production, like, quote, open-faced casting molds, crucibles, slags, and a tuyere, which is a blowpipe for copper smelting, and four actual smelting pit furnaces, end quote. We also see finished products, like small chisels, earrings, and pins, all of which indicates that copper was brought in in its raw form and worked locally, instead of being imported as finished objects. Here, we also see infant jar burials, similar to those at Tepegara and Tel Abada. We have six babies buried in jars, and four infants buried without jars, and with one exception, they have no grave goods. So in that one exception, in addition to the baby, the storage jar also held a miniature clay vessel, one copper ring, and two silver rings, which are the oldest silver objects known from the site and maybe the oldest silver known from all of Anatolia. This is probably evidence of inherited status. This is the same time that we see rich child burials at Tepe Gaura. Also from the Slayer, we see beads, animal figurines, and spindle whorls. Combined with stone tools and animal bones, this indicates that this is all domestic refuse. In other words, we don't see any evidence of large-scale production for export. So to sum up, before Uruk contact, Hajanebi had social complexity with hereditary elites, administrative technology in the form of stamp seals, metallurgy and craft production. All of this was mostly geared towards local consumption, but we do see evidence of small-scale trade. So to move forward, phase B2 at Hajanebi corresponds to the Middle Uruk period, about 3700 to 3300 BCE. Hajanebi is now 3.3 hectares, so it's grown to the size of a small town. And around this time, we see the first appearance of Uruk goods appearing alongside the traditional northern culture. On the south side, built on top of the previous monumental building, and again oriented northeast to southwest, we see a new building with walls 1.4 meters thick, and it has stone on the bottom course of these walls on the exterior. These exterior walls also have buttresses and niches, which again may indicate that this is a public building. In a deposit inside one room of this building, we see a hut symbol carved into limestone, similar to symbols found at Tepe Gara, Arslan Tepe, and Hasek Hergyuk, and we also see an Anatolian-style stamp seal impression. So this particular building was probably a local administrative center, and not an Uruk one. But at the same time, we see a major reorganization on the northeastern side of town. Here, a new stone wall was built, 2.8 meters tall. The area behind this wall was filled in with mud and limestone to create a monumental platform, at least 8 by 7 meters in area. On top of this platform was the Uruk Enclave, so while the locals keep doing their thing in town, we now also have a small southern Mesopotamian administrative complex, literally on higher ground, similar to that at Godin Tepe. 
During this period, Hydra Navy's focus shifted to the north-south Euphrates trade route. In other words, the trade route connecting it to the alluvium. The distance upriver from Unug was about 1,360 kilometers, or about 850 miles. Any boat traveling upstream had to be towed by teams of workers who could travel about 10 to 20 kilometers a day. So this journey would take three to four months, and because you'd be returning downstream, the return journey would take just a little over one month. So all in all, including whatever business you have to take care of while you're in Hajanebi, the round trip from Unug to Hajanebi and back might take six months. On top of the platform, we see a monumental building. This is also oriented northwest to southeast. Early on, we see large, well-planned stone structures, but later periods are rebuilt with more mud bricks. So found in the earliest layer of this building, we see Uruk pottery, including 4,300 sherds of beveled rim bowls. We see clay wall cones, which are a distinctive Uruk architectural decoration, some of which are dipped in bitumen, which we'll see is very common at Hajanebi. We also see a limestone eye idol, similar to those from Telbrock. So two plastered pits are full of trash from this monumental complex. We see over 100 local stamp seal impressions, as well as clay with impressions of wood, string, rope, leather, reeds, and basketry. So essentially, the monumental wall they built would have separated the Uruk complex from the rest of town. Within this complex, sheep and goats make up 80-90% to 90 of the animal remains. Sheep, of course, being the characteristic livestock of the southern Mesopotamian economy for their wool production. But in the rest of town, sheep and goats make up just under half of total meat production. Animal bones in these areas show different cut marks from different knives and different butchery practices. And the existence of entire animals in Uruk complex, not just immediate parts, show that they were raising and preparing their own food, not collecting butchered meat as tribute from the locals. Similarly, inside the complex, 96% of pottery is of an Uruk style, whereas outside the complex, 83% of pottery are from local wares, with no beveled rim bowls at all. So also similar to Godin Tepe, locals keep using their own stuff. As I mentioned, Hajanebi was a major bitumen hub. Before the Uruk period, this bitumen came from the Kirkuk area of northern Iraq. It was used to waterproof boats, which of course were important at a river crossing. It was also used to waterproof pottery, especially the spouts. This bitumen was probably brought to Hajanebi in blocks and melted down on site for particular uses. One piece of bitumen had impressions from parallel wooden beams, so it might have been used to caulk a boat or a raft, or maybe to seal a roof. During Uruk colonization, the amount of bitumen they get from the Kirkuk area decreases, and instead we see more imported from central Mesopotamia and southwestern Iran, that is, from closer to the Uruk heartland. We see one big deposit of bitumen in a storehouse in the south of the site. So here, over 15 kilograms, or 33 pounds, of bitumen were recovered. Only about 7% of this was from the Kirkuk area, and 55% was from an unidentified source. This points to a market increase in trade goods imported from southern Mesopotamia. So to look at other crafts, in addition to local pottery, Hajanebi had the full range of Uruk ceramics, including pottery for cooking, serving, and storage. Uruk potters here used a pottery wheel, and kiln wasters, in other words, rejects from the pottery making process, attest to on-site pottery production, so they weren't only importing pots from elsewhere. We also see baked clay sickles. The ones in the Uruk complex have sickle sheen on them, so unlike at Habuba Kabira, it looks like this Uruk complex was harvesting its own grain. They also made their own stone tools, just like the locals were, and from the same raw materials. We see evidence of coppersmithing in both the Uruk complex and in the rest of the town, including molds and crucible fragments, indicating that both the locals and the Uruk complex were involved in their own copper production. We also see a chunk of malachite, or a form of copper ore, stuck to an Uruk beveled rim bowl, possibly because these bowls were used to measure out malachite for the metallurgical process. We also see clay spindle whorls in both areas, so both communities were spinning their own thread. And just like Hajjadeb used the full range of Uruk pottery, they also used the full range of Uruk administrative practices, including sealed balls, sealed numerical notation tablets, and grooved stone weights. Meanwhile, local accounting practices were dominated by the northern-style stamp seal. Both of these existed side by side. One of these sealed balls contained 12 clay tokens, and the outside of this ball was covered with impressions from two different Uruk-style seals. 
So in his 2001 article, Gilstein wrote that Anatolian seals were found on, quote, wooden boxes, packets of reed matting, leather bags, and cloth sacks, end quote, but never on, quote, ceramic vessels, tablets, jar stoppers, or clay balls, end quote. Generally, we see that clay impressed with an Uruk seal and clay impressed with an Anatolian seal come from different areas. Uruk sealings are divided into two subgroups. We have Uruk sealings on local clay, which indicate that cylinder seals were used on site. In other words, that the Uruk people here had their own cylinder seals. This included the sealed ball that I just mentioned with tokens. The other subgroup comprises Uruk sealings on non-local clay, and this clay is most similar to clay from the Susa area, which is of course notable because Susa is on the far end of the Uruk world, the far southeast, while Hadranebi is in the far northwest. So this administrative network also appears to be oriented on a northwest-southeast axis. In general, local and Uruk administrative systems existed alongside each other, but they were totally separate and they barely interacted with each other, which probably speaks to separate spheres of influence. So returning to the story of Enmerkar and Ensukeshtana. Previously, Ensukeshtana, the wicked lord of Arata, sent a sorcerer to mess with Sumer's agriculture. And now the text introduces a new character. The wise woman Sangburu arrives and engages in a magic contest with the sorcerer. Both of them threw fish spawn into the river. The sorcerer made a giant carp arise from the water. Wise woman Sangburu, however, made an eagle arise from the water. The eagle seized the giant carp and fled to the mountains. So this story has shades of Moses' magic contest with Pharaoh's magicians. All of these subsequent contests follow the same format. They begin by throwing baby fish into the water. You know, the sorcerer produces a sheep, but Sangburu produces a wolf that eats the sheep. He makes a cow. She makes a lion to eat the cow. He makes an ibex and a wild sheep, and she makes a leopard to eat them. And he makes a gazelle kid, and she produces a tiger and a lion to eat it. She seems to be going for carnivores, and it makes me wonder why our home sorcerer is going for all these, like herbivores maybe it's more powerful magic to make a carnivore maybe it's like that whole like wild shape thing where you can only wild shape into animals that you've seen before Mm. and like she's seen carnivores and that makes her more powerful because she's like seen them and lived and he's only ever seen these like domestic things that would be cool that'd be interesting i don't know who's to say because, like, you can't produce a lion if you've never seen a lion. Like, you can try, but I really don't think you're going to get it. True. What happened made the face of the sorcerer darken, made his mind confused. Wise woman Sangburu said to him, Sorcerer, you do have magical powers, but where is your sense? How on earth could you think of going to do sorcery at Eresh? which is the city of Nisava, a city whose destiny was decreed by Anne and Enlil, the primeval city, the beloved city of Ninlil. The sorcerer answered her, I went there without knowing all about this. I acknowledge your superiority. Please do not be bitter. He pleaded. He prayed to her. Set me free, my sister, set me free. Let me go in peace to my city. Let me return safely to Arada, the mount of the lustrous May. I will make known your greatness in all the lands. I will sing your praise in Arada, the mount of the lustrous May. Wise woman Sangburu answered to him, You have caused distress in the animal pen and the byre. You have made the butter and the milk scarce there. You have removed the lunch table, the morning and evening a table. You have cut off butter and milk from the evening meal of the great dining hall. Your sin cannot be forgiven. Nana the king established that it was a capital offense, and I am not pardoning your life. So Sangburu tells the assembly about her decision, and then she drowns the sorcerer. Oh my god. Fuck. 
Goddamn. Wow. Not fucking around. Absolutely not fucking around. She threw her prisoner from the bank of the Euphrates. She seized from him his life force and then returned to her city, Eresh. She seized his life force. She's a necromancer. Yeah, exactly. Having heard this matter, Ensukeshdana sent a man to Enmerkar. You are the beloved lord of Inanna. You alone are exalted. Inanna has truly chosen you for her holy lap. You are her beloved. From the south to the highlands, you are the great lord, and I am only second to you. From the moment of conception, I was not your equal. You are the older brother. I cannot match you ever. In the contest between Enmerkar and Enzukeshdana, Enmerkar proved superior to Enzukeshdana. Nisaba be praised. (laughs) 